there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Rock and roll legends The Who announced they were breaking up. The Christmas Parade from Epcot Center in Florida's Walt Disney World Park was televised live for the very first time, and 13-year-old Drew McQueenie may or may not have acted the fool near one of the cameras, hoping to get some screen time. Severe political unrest in Beirut led to an escalation of attacks on American forces as well as attacks by American forces. Car bombs, snipers, and more were involved, and it felt like the world was going crazy everywhere. The IRA blew up Herod's in London, two jets collided in Madrid, and car bombs in Israel and Kuwait claimed many more lives. On a positive note, though, El Salvador adopted its first constitution ever. Someone stole the original World Cup trophy from the headquarters of the Brazilian Football Confederation in Rio, which is hilarious, and Pope John Paul II somehow found the grace to actually pardon the man who shot him. That's kind of a beautiful way to wrap up December of 1983. Hi everybody, I'm Drew McWeeny and welcome to the last regular episode of the fourth season of 80s All Over and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you, buddy? Damn, sir, that was a lot of syllables in a row. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always happy to hear your news, what do we call those, the uh, news feeds? We'll call those the 80s news feeds. Thank you, Drew. Very happy to finish 1983. We'll be back in two weeks with our recap episode, but as many of our listeners know, I am not a fan of this year overall. Uh, I am happy to announce that there are a handful of truly great films, but I think history has bore out my theory even back then that if you were to just do a master list of the top 100 films of this year compared to 82 and 84, I think 83 would come up markedly short. I got really excited because 84, 85, 86 right in a row. Holy crap, there's a lot of amazing stuff coming. And yeah, it does feel like 83 is the the year where everything was shifting and grinding and kind of trying to get started and when the the you know the rip engine when you're trying to start a lawnmower uh 1982 was the first rip off that 1983 was it kind of sputtering and then 84 was the engine kicking into full gear and oh boy before we kick in we have to of course and it's always thank every single listener and our patrons. We've had some great bonus episodes recently, and we have some really great ones coming up very soon. Uh, one of my favorite things is when we, you or I uh, hop on Twitter and go, new episode up, November 1983, and we get like four people who go, I was born that month. Uh, that's my, I love that, and that, that'll happen a lot. By the time we get to like January of 87, half of Twitter will be like, I was born then. Uh, yeah, this uh, Before we kick into the films proper, we're going to discuss a short film that was one of the most seen films 
uh, of the entire decade and probably remains one of the most viewed films of all time. Michael, I think this is going to be the Citizen Kane of uh, the videos. I really do. It's going to be the most revolutionary thing in the history of uh, the videos, you know. Well, the videos are getting to be... uh, I mean, it's a new art form now, but I think this is leading the way. Beat it, and this one is leading the way. Tonight, on a special holiday edition of Friday Night Videos, the network television premiere of Michael Jackson's Thriller. I want to ask where and when you saw it first, because I know I remember Michael Jackson's Thriller like a lightning bolt. I want to say I saw the long uh, the long version within the first day or two that it hit MTV. You know, being young at the time, I wasn't a huge Michael Jackson fan, but I, I didn't dislike him and you couldn't escape him. The day it came out, we went somewhere with some friends and then we went back to their house. And when we got to their house, their younger brother and sister uh, who had not gone with us came running up and they said, there's a Michael Jackson video now. There's a new Michael Jackson video. MTV was treating it like the event that it was. And so every hour on the hour, Michael Jackson's thriller premiered again and they had the big build up to it. So we walked in about nine minutes before it was supposed to start again. And we watched the whole countdown and everybody was very excited. And then the thing played. And about halfway through, the dad who had gone with us got really mad that the little kids were watching it and that they'd already seen it and that this was okay for that. He got very upset by Thriller and everybody shushed him because we all wanted to see what was happening. And I'll never forget that first viewing. I couldn't believe what MTV was getting away with. It felt really crazy and bold and it definitely felt like something had just changed. I didn't notice this at the time, but looking back, it was another notch on the mainstreaming of horror. Clearly, Michael Jackson likes horror movies, and this is fun and funny and scary and, you know, elaborately put together. I like the video. Don't love the song. (laughs) I mean, it's like... It's a catchy song, though. It's an earworm. And it's it's funny. Just the other day, I was listening to another podcast in the car, uh, Boogie Monster. And uh, that's Kyle Kinane and Dave Stone, two comedians, just talking about the paranormal. Although they rarely get around to the paranormal, mostly it's talking about food and life on the road as comics. And they were talking at, towards the end of their episode. And for some reason, Kyle just turned on Michael Jackson's thriller, turned on the song and lost his mind for it again and talked about what a big deal it was when he bought the album and what the song was. And he couldn't get over the fact that all it is is Michael Jackson just saying scary things. And he's like, I don't even understand how that's a hit song, but it's the greatest song of all time. And I don't understand why. And I think part of the appeal of Michael Jackson's, that whole album was the first time you heard it, it was undeniable. Like, you just heard it and went, oh, okay, well, that's what pop music sounds like now. So now we move into December proper. We'll stick with the musical arena. I'm going to predict it, damn it. Drew, you liked this film. Ladies and gentlemen, straight from this fantastically successful world tour, for the last time, David Bowie! Bam, bam, thank you, ma'am. D.A. Pennebeckert's Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. 
he was uh, at that point the king of the rock music documentary because of Monterey Pop and uh, Don't Look Back. Clearly, if you were going to hire somebody to do an important rock documentary, he's the guy you would go after. They wanted to get David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust character on film. Uh, this was when he was really into the sort of T-Rex glam rock end of things. Watch that man. All the young dudes owe you pretty things. The the technical end of this thing, it was kind of thrown together at the last minute. I don't think Pennebaker, I don't think he nailed it technically the way he nailed some of his earlier live things that he shot. It is historic because at the end of the show, Bowie announces this is the last time you'll ever see the Ziggy Stardust character. It was something that Pennebaker said he was not aware of. He didn't understand what this show was going to be until that moment happened. And to have that on film and to have that that moment where the audience hears that and it sinks in that Bowie's about to shed this skin and move on to whatever the next one is, uh, it's kind of a historic, amazing thing to be able to witness. And you don't always get rock history in front of the camera. This is a moment where you did. My tastes for Bowie are a little more, a bit more conventional than people who are slightly older than me, but I had a good time with this. I... Is it readily available for Bowie fans, Drew? Not really. The album is much more available than the film is. Uh, And the film was shot in 1973. It didn't come out until 1983. And it had a really labored post-production. And that's part of the problem is the rights to it are just a nightmare. You know what else is a nightmare? I believe I'm about to agree with you real, real hard about can she bake a cherry pie? All right. Now, here's something I think that every serious film fan goes through. You hear a certain filmmaker's name and you think, yeah, I think I've seen one or two of their films. Didn't really click for me. And then you look back and you realize, well, this person has a lot of respect and accolades. And did I miss the boat on Henry Jaglum? Uh, I don't think you did. Who's this guy? He's like somebody who saw a Woody Allen film and said, I can do this a little harsher, a little cheaper. I'm sure that Henry Jaglin would tell you that his influences included, yes, Woody Allen, John Cassavetes. And the problem is Henry Jaglin doesn't have the talent of any of those filmmakers. What he has is the drive to make movies. I have always wrestled with my reaction to his films because I don't want to just sound like a bitter piece of shit going, well, I get it. You want to make a movie and you made a movie, but that doesn't make it a good movie. That's my reaction to most of Jaglum's work. We just did last week, Midnight Madness, the National Lampoon thing. And you want to believe that the third segment of that Robbie Benson segment that is so mind bogglingly horrible. You want to believe it's an aberration in his career like that can't be Henry Jaglum. But then you watch this one, which is about a middle aged musician, a woman who uh, is left by her husband and whatever. You watch this and no, this is Henry Jaglum. It is uneven. It's weird. You have no idea what his comic tone is meant to be at any point or what reality this is. His New York, I have no connection. I don't get it. I look forward to digging into some of his later films because while I did not care for what I saw, I fell asleep halfway through last night. I ain't going to lie. The characters are not likable, which is fine, but they're grating. 
I don't even feel like they're characters. It feels like you're stuck at a party with famous people that Henry Jaglum knows who he got to come over, but they don't really know why they're there or what they're supposed to do. So you're all kind of standing around and look, there's Orson Welles doing magic tricks in the corner. Karen Black is going to sing old folk songs and it's going to get really old really fast. And at at some point, I just want to go home. Another filmmaker who has a voluminous body of work and some of it is deeply admired by horror fans. Let's discuss Fred Olin Ray's scalps. She did not know she was calling evil spirits of the past. They did not listen to the warnings before digging up the sacred ground of the dead. The evil in this ground is alive with evil. Hold your head in fear that you are next. The only movie that you may not be strong enough to watch to the end. Scalps. Never disturb the graves of the dead. Rated R. No one under 17 will be admitted without a parent. Not good. Not good, Jan. It's a lunk-headed sort of racial revenge, supernatural thriller about white people disturbing Indian grounds. And boy, that title doesn't tell you that coming, huh? There's lots of slasher movies that deal in racial stereotypes and you know you don't expect a, a, a B movie production to tread lightly when it comes to other people's cultures. And I've seen horror films that are much more tacky than this, but it's just that's the sole hook. And the makeup is ridiculous. Uh, it just looks like somebody slapped a mud mask on someone and uh, let it dry a little bit. Yeah. And as much as I don't like this film, it might be one of Fred Olin Ray's best films. <laughs> um, our next one is another entry in the 80s demolition derby of charming drunks. Scott, what did you make of Reuben Reuben? Gowan Evans McGland is a poet with uh, quite a reputation. Well, doesn't it bother you that you're almost as well known as a womanizer? You are a poet. No, no, no. What bothers me is that neither pays very well. Hundreds of women loved him, but she understood him. Reuben Reuben. I thought it was stupid, stupid. <laughs> Here's my experience with Ruben Ruben. I'm watching it. And first of all, Tom Conti. As an asshole. Just say yeah, it. Uh, just an asshole. He's just a drunken Scottish wrecking ball who is famous because he's a poet. And all he does is roll around, fuck up other people's marriages, have sex with people, get pissed drunk in public. And then he falls in love with someone. And that's supposed to be redeeming in some way over the rest of the film. That wears thin early on, and then the movie kind of rolls along, and you wonder, okay, where are we going with this thing? And it takes a left turn in the last 14 seconds that is so dramatic that I felt like I got pranked. Like, you like you cut the film just to see what my reaction would be, because there's no fucking way that's how Ruben Ruben ends, man. It is the way. It is a reason. <laughs> And I watch it and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is definitely based on a play because that's that. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, that play is based on a book. Literary irony of the highest uh, esteem or import. It's so <laughs> up its own <laughs> ass. It's just crazy where this movie goes. Uh, I will say this and it's, <laughs> in it's uh, support of Ruben Rubin, feature film debut of Kelly McGillis. Ruben Rubin feels like somebody watched Arthur and said, let's do that, but let's go a lot darker with the ending. Imagine Imagine if you're watching Arthur, and at the end of it, John Gielgud goes, I'll be right back. I'm going to go fix your tea. And Arthur goes, great. And John Gielgud walks in the other room, and Arthur grabs a gun and...
that's how fucking crazy the end of this movie uh, is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, a film obviously that's based on a play, that's based on a novel, clearly has some erudition and some accomplishment behind it that maybe a guy like me. Well, we just watched the good version of this with Educating Rita. Let's talk a little bit right now about Oscar bait. Do you remember Oscar campaigns from back then? Do you remember, were you an Oscar watcher at that point? No, no. I, I know that Tom Conti was nominated for Best Actor, and it was also nominated for yeah. Best Adapted yeah, and. I remember, though, that Educating Rita, which is mining some of the same territory this is, but does it more nimbly and does it in a way where the ending really lands, you understand how broken Michael Caine is and how he's not sure he's ever going to fix himself. And that's it's tragic and it's interesting. Does uh, does Ruben Ruben win the I Am The Cheese Award for WTF oh, ending? 100% for this month, yes. Our next movie was also one of those where I think – the talk from the very moment it first screened was probably, oh my God, this thing could win everything. Let's talk about The Dresser. World War II. Britain struggles for survival as a great actor struggles to go on. How much further do you want me to go? Only one man can help him. The Dresser. Shouldn't we be getting to the theater? The world sees only the performance. The Dresser sees the pain, the struggle, the humor, the vanity. Columbia Pictures presents Albert Finney and Tom Courtney in The Dresser, the hero behind the man. I will give my young self credit for one thing. I knew what I wouldn't be able to sit through, and I would not have been able to sit through The Dresser when I was 14. No effing way. Having watched it last week, I think it's fantastic. I think it's a wonderful look at the actor's process, even if the actor happens to be slowly demented and and kind of an asshole. Uh, and it really is just the ongoing relationship between like uh, Albert Finney, who is slowly uh, losing his grasp on reality and is going from just cranky and abusive to literally nuts. You know, it's a kind of dry in that it's mostly just talk. It is based on a stage play. But anybody who's interested in theater or acting will find this movie fascinating, I think. We talked a lot about Death Trap and how what a rich sort of wonderful playground it was for those actors to be able to do that material. And I feel like death trap is one of those where I'd watch almost anybody do a remake of death trap. If you had the right combination of two people, the dresser is the same thing. I, I noticed a lot of times when you're adapting theater, that's what theater is built to do. It's built to create these sort of engines where you can just throw great actors at one another and see what happens. And this was based on the actual experience of Ronald Harwood, the guy that wrote the script and who wrote the play. And he was for many years a dresser for a famous English actor who did traveling Shakespeare. And I find mind boggling the idea that you can just be walking around as an actor and you have about 15 or 20 Shakespearean plays in their entirety stored in your head so that on any given moment, when you're, it's your time to do that play, you call that one up. That's crazy to me, but these guys, that's what they do. I love, love, love Albert Finney as the deteriorating madman lunatic who every now and then taps back into that gift that made him worth watching in the first place. And it's a it's Albert Finney at full volume and directed by Peter Yates, his second film of 1983, as if the day he finished supervising the edit on Krull, he went, holy shit, get me something British and literate right now. That is one eclectic year for Mr. Yates, Krull and the dresser in 1983. I think for Yates especially, it is a 
a reminder that that's who Peter Yates really is. Peter Yates is a, a fairly literate English filmmaker. You got so angry at Peter Yates for trying fantasy capriciously. I was so mad. I was so <laughs> mad. But look, okay, it's, it's all is forgiven, Peter. All is well, because look at this thing, man. And not only is uh, Albert Finney terrific in it, but then the way this film ends, you want to talk about an ending, this film has a terrific ending. And what is really fascinating is knowing that Harwood was a real dresser, that there was a real guy that he worked with for years, that he modeled this after. This last scene is about whether or not the actor ever really saw him. For Ronald Harwood to be able to write this play and to be able to write that scene and be able to have Tom Courtney unleash what he unleashes. Was 0 for 5 at the Oscars. Uh, It was nominated for Adapted Screenplay, both Finney and Tom Courtney were nominated for actor, uh, director, and picture. Uh, Terms of Endearment steamrolled the dresser. Everybody just had to get out of the way. Terms of Endearment was an 800-pound gorilla that year. But hey. Speaking of 800-pound gorillas, Drew, a comeback of sorts for a huge action star in a film that my favorite film critic of all time called Fascist. Dirty Harry is at it again. My day. Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, Sudden Impact. Rated R. Now showing. Check newspaper for a theater near you. I have an uneasy relationship with the Dirty Harry films. I'm watching this movie, and to me, all I remembered of Sudden Impact was like a handful of kills and the iconic scene. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, this feels like half of a contemporary for the time, Dirty Harry movie, and half a screenplay that was written in like 1973 about a woman who gets revenge. I did my research after watching the movie, and that is what it is. It is a Dirty Harry movie grafted onto an old Charles B. Pierce script. This is a mainstream movie. This is Warner Brothers. This was their big Christmas movie, which is, okay, that's kind of wild. And it was an event film for them by virtue of the fact that they had Clint Eastwood coming back to a character that was at that point one of the few real, enduring, and still contemporary franchise characters that was out there. First Dirty Harry film for him to direct. And if reports are accurate, he got literally 60% of the profits. He was commercially on fire, and Warner Brothers was greenlighting one hit after another with him. Clint was pretty bulletproof for them because of the budgets that he worked at. He was really smart about what he spent. So Sudden Impact was irresistible to them, and it was their giant Christmas movie. And... I do think this movie is diseased. It's no different in content than the really shitty, sleazy Charlie Bronson Cannon films, but it's been given the, the pretense of class by Warner Brothers releasing it. And to me, that's in some ways more offensive. There's something weirdly gross about Sudden Impact. Uh, yeah, I don't entirely disagree. And again, you know, I am not averse to films that have conservative tendencies. This just feels like Michael Douglas in Falling Down got to direct a movie. Yeah, and I don't know that the movie even has its politics figured out. That's my problem with the Dirty Harry series overall, is the first film is such a wicked take on police violence and fascism. It really deflates Harry. Harry is, by the end of that movie, Harry's disgusted with himself. When he throws the badge away, that should have been it. That should have been the end of Harry as a cop ever. Except... 
that it was a giant, giant, giant hit. So, yeah, you have to have Harry come back and you have to have him be a cop again. And in doing that, they made a decision, which was the franchise is more important than any sort of internal logic or character. And so Harry simply is Harry in this nonstop abrasive sense of I'm going to shoot everybody and then just let everyone else figure it out. Like petty crimes, too. He's great. Like, purse, grab my purse. Blam, blam, blam. Like, that restaurant robbery at the beginning, he stone cold kills like six people and only spares that one guy by the skin of his teeth. And the movie plays that as the big, iconic, awesome moment. Look at this. Here's Harry. Isn't Harry awesome? And yeah, he kind of is. Does a movie like this that says, yeah, deep down, we all want to kill somebody that we know is a vicious murderer. Is it wrong to make a movie that appeals to that sense of wish fulfillment? I would rather watch a Dirty Harry movie where I think it was honestly wrestling with, should I just fucking kill everybody who gets in my way? Should I just literally use lethal force as the the hammer by which I clear a path through modern If you didn't life? know that there was a fifth Dirty Harry movie, you, you'd be halfway through this thinking... This has to end with him in an in insane asylum. The plot has to kick in where the FBI have to take down Dirty Harry. My favorite thing about Dirty Harry and about Clint Eastwood's approach in general is that he is the opposite of um, Schwarzenegger and Stallone in that Dirty Harry's not remotely cool. Dirty Harry is a dude wearing vests with a shitty haircut who wears J.C. Penny jackets. And that's what I love about Harry is Harry is that guy. This is not a character who you're ever going to see in driving a Ducati motorcycle. Right, and- like if Dirty Harry was a real cop and he was working today, he'd be in prison. <laughs> oh, oh, a thousand percent. I find the political underpinnings of the Dirty Harry movies upsetting. It's not boring, but I don't think it's a very good film. All right. We're going to move on to a movie that I am fascinated by, Scott. And I'm really curious what your relationship is with Michael Mann's The Keep. This is an asterisk movie for a lot of horror fans because, you know, Michael Mann, of course, can, oh, Thief is amazing. And oh, what's this? Ooh, a horror film? Whoa, what a cast. Oh, my goodness. Man, the keep starts out fine. This takes place during World War II. Nazis kind of storm through this little Romanian village on their way to this giant keep, which is another word for fortress. And it looks like uh, something that's been carved out of a mountain. And it's very ominous and intimidating. We quickly come to discover that there's something very evil inside this keep. The people who have to deal with this uh, evil presence are Nazis. And that, that whole setup works just fine. And then we get to a point where we cut to Scott Glenn. And the movie just turned into like a Sid and Marty Croft production. It just got silly. And it brings in Ian McKellen. They bring him in and there's so much chit chat. It almost reminds me of Prince of Darkness. And it just slowly gets more and more indecipherable for such a simple premise. But The Keep has a fantastic Tangerine Dream score. It has some beautiful, striking visual moments. But there's got like Robert Prosky as a Romanian priest. It's like, come on. Almost everybody in this film is miscast. Jurgen Prock now is a Nazi miscast. 
Ian McKellen as this expert who just is unleashed and ranting all over the place. Not a great performance by a brilliant actor. I've seen it three times in my life, and it's just at the halfway point, my brain just wanders off. I'm fascinated by this movie, by the fact that it became hard to see as soon as it came out. And it was by Michael Mann's request. Michael Mann really doesn't like this movie. And it's a film that, you know, there's an alternate cut of that I've heard arguments for why it's supposedly better. But this is one of those films that is so fundamentally mismade that it doesn't matter which cut you're watching. It just doesn't work as a film. The project itself, I would argue, may not have been suited to working as a film. F. Paul Wilson, who wrote the book The Keep, is the author of a much larger series of books called The Adversary Cycle or subsection of that called The Repairman Jack novels. And they're like uh, Jack Reacher novels, basically, but with supernatural stuff. And little by little over the course of those books, you realize there's a giant war between good and evil going on in the background and he's getting pulled into it. And little by little, the bad guy in that series is revealed to be the thing that's trapped inside the keep in this movie. Molasar, as the character is called, is the overall villain that I guess is through all of F. Paul Wilson's books. And so the keep is related to all these other books and is part of this larger series. And so all the incomprehensible stuff you're talking about would never possibly work boiled down into one 95 minute cut of this movie where Ian McKellen has the burden of trying to explain it all to you because of something he read off of a wall. That's just dramatically miserable. Nobody's going to make that work. Even get into how Jürgen Prochnow is ostensibly the quote-unquote decent Nazi. Who shows up 20 minutes later as the evil Nazi? Of course. Gabriel Byrne is the guy they call in because he's Colonel Klink, who they call in because Schultz is fucking up. So, <laughs> yes. And, and Schultz is Jürgen Prochnow, who now has to become evil because, goddammit, Clank is here. So that's the dynamic in the keep. You mentioned that there might be an extended cut. I doubt there is. There is. There's a much longer I mean, I'm cut. sure there's, there's a this. work print, but that's a big difference between a finished. Yeah. And the argument is that there's a work print that people have seen because there's TV cuts where there's footage that didn't exist anywhere else. And just on the, the, the whole connection to there, there's some creepy stuff in the TV version of Halloween two that we, that nobody got to see until Blu-ray. There's a shitload of Caddyshack stuff. That's only in TV versions. But um, so The Keep is one of those movies where now that I'm a fan of the the source material, I'm really baffled by why anybody thought this was the way to do this. I, I think the main problem is the screenplay is a mess. And the thing is, clearly, it, it's a very simple linear story. And yet it's still confusing. If you could find a really good transfer and you could play it loud, the visual and the music will make up for the confused plot. Well, and the fact that you can't hear half the dialogue because the film was never technically finished. I didn't know Michael if that Mann, was on me or not. It was, that's, no, 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 he abandoned the movie. He, like, he literally just stopped working on this cut after a while. And so the theatrical version of it is mixed wrong. There's places where people are talking and Scott Glenn will turn to somebody and go, <laughs> while Tangerine Dream goes, bah, 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 and you have no fucking idea what anybody's saying. So, okay. I, I guess he's going into the light now for some reason. I really do wish that I was able on my third try in 30 years to say, yeah, it's a misunderstood, not classic, but it's good. But man, it's a mess. <laughs> What's our next movie? What hath Greece wrought? Are you fucking kidding me? That John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John didn't want to do Greece too, but they signed on to do Fucking John Travolta is one of a kind. A 
Olivia Newton-John is one of a kind. Can you believe it? It took a twist of fate to make them two of a kind. You won't do anything you don't want to do. Two of a Kind, rated PG, starts Friday, December 16th at a selected theater near you. In the 80s, you couldn't escape comments about this movie. This was like a turkey on par with Ishtar for a while. The premise is one of those fucking rotten God, as voiced by Gene freaking Hackman, wants to kill all of humanity, and then his angels convince him to give them another chance based on the actions of two rotten people. Those two rotten people are John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, and we're supposed to want them to get together to save humanity. I'm watching the film thinking, fuck humanity. I want them both to be hit by a bus. First of all, there's an entire romantic comedy that you could make just based on bank robber goes into a bank, tries to hold the bank up, the teller makes off with the money, and the bank robber gets blamed for it. That's a great romantic comedy if that's the whole movie. There's a really clever idea in there about expectations and about how people view you. And, man, you could have fun with that. So why is that wedged into a movie about the dainty ape Oliver Reed in full dainty ape mode as the devil fighting with Charles Durning over fate for two hours while Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta – limp through the worst it's comedy. got this bit where the devil and the angels can like rewind and fast forward reality and they do it three or four times and it, it really does feel like a slow 14 year old just discovered ff and rew on the vhs remote if your characters can do that who cares about anything if all bets are off and any rule can be changed i am bored There's a million of these supernatural movies where the fate of mankind rests on a romantic uh, connection. And you know what? They're pretty easy to get right. It's not a tough formula to nail. Heaven Can Wait is a great example of it. But it's also easy to miss the target so spectacularly that it kills your career. And here's what happened to John Hersfeld, the writer-director of this movie. And, man, it's a miserable movie. When he finally made another feature film, I remember how they treated it like it was his first movie. There was no press where they mentioned that he had ever made anything yeah, that's before. A good, that is a really interesting point. This is the film that you're referring to is uh, 1996's Two Days in the Valley, which is not yeah. bad. Remember that? John Hirschfeld, brand new filmmaker. He's like a Quentin Tarantino guy. He's this guy. And it was a reinvention. He was born again in 1996 because this movie was that big of a turkey that he it took him over a decade to shake this yeah. thing. I think the expectations were so high. Now, the soundtrack album for this movie was huge. And the song Twist of Fate was everywhere that Christmas. Oh, it's everywhere in this freaking oh, garbage yeah, movie. And the, the soundtrack is obnoxious in this film. And I like Olivia Newton-John's a lot of her early 80s pop. But boy, Twist of Fate is not a good song. Like, the worst song in Xanadu is better than yeah. that. And uh, and all of the music is of a kind. It's that it's All of it is that awful, weird early 80s cokehead disco that I hate so much. Two of a Kind is a monumental train wreck, arguably one of the worst films of the entire decade. We dare you to watch the entire film. We hope you like it more than we do. We doubt that is going to happen. Drew, now we move on to a film that I think we're both going to be in agreement on again, although the other way. Now, from the spellbinding international bestseller, 
comes an electrifying motion picture. I've been dealing the whole time, so now they'll deal with me. He doesn't know who to trust. Please, you don't want this case. Where to turn? I have to have a witness. Someone must tell me. Orion Pictures presents William Hurt, Lee Marvin, Joanna Pakula, Brian Dennehy, Gorky Park. This is a case kind of like Jaws, where you're working from sort of trashy mainstream airport paperback novels and turning it into something that's, if not high art, certainly high pulp. And uh, I'm a big fan. I would think, though, that if I wrote an espionage novel, they handed it to Dennis Potter and Michael Apted, who had coming off, well, Continental Divide, not, not really his fault, Coal Miner's Daughter, let's focus on that. And this was a big return to form for, for Michael Apted and I think for uh, for Dennis Potter because Brimstone wasn't, I don't think, all that well received. This is just a basic murder mystery in many ways about three people who are found in a park with their fingerprints and their faces removed. But what makes it very interesting is that this potentially standard murder mystery takes place in Moscow. William Hurt makes an insane choice accent-wise in this movie and then just doubles down on it as the film continues. It's odd. It's an odd accent choice. I honestly think that the marching orders were the audience knows that every character on screen is Russian. I don't want you get really playing up the Russian like Alison Brie does on Glow. Yeah, we have that literally happen later this month in another movie. And it's always a question. Like, how do you handle it? Got a lot of good actors. Joanna Pakula. Uh, she's really good in it. I believe this is her. Uh, she's a Polish actress. I believe this is her American debut. Uh, Brian Dennehy, not in the movie much, but oh boy, when he shows up, you see why he became like, you know, the character actor gold standard for a while. Uh, it's got Richard Griffiths, Ian McDiarmid. Interesting, but not world shattering procedural with interesting characters. Has some good twists. It has a great James Horner score. That sounds a lot like his score for 48 Hours, but uh, but it's really very cool. My favorite tidbit about this movie is that Dustin Hoffman was very close to being William Hurt in lead, and he wanted five million bucks, so they hired William Hurt instead. Wow. My favorite small uh, character performance of the film, uh, Alexi Sale, English comedy freaks. If you're a Youngman's fan, you know Alexi Sale, the king of the Dr. Martin boots. He has a great scene in this movie where they hang him out a window and torture him. And uh, he is outstanding in his one moment. And man, I got to take my hat off to Lee Marvin. Like every time I see a performance of his that I'm not as familiar with, I didn't really know this film. I knew it by reputation. I remember the book. I remember what the movie was. But I love detective movies that are built on ironic, painful endings. And I like the way Gorky Park ultimately... Even though there was a point where I was like, really, is this what this movie's about? This is the thing that all of this hinges on. It's a big reach, but I like it. And I think they nail it. It's really good. I like Gorky Park a lot. You know what I don't like, Drew? DC Cab. The odds were against them. Lock it. And the crooked commissioner was against them. But Albert Hockenberry had a dream. We just might make something of ourselves. Of taking DC Cab to the top. And nothing could stop him. Not even his future mother-in-law. Have her home by 10.30. DC Cab, rated R. 
starts Friday at theaters everywhere. Yeah, you're going to hear about this one. I am interested in DC Cab. I do not enjoy DC Cab. There is not one laugh in this movie. And you know why? It's because it's written and directed by Joel Schumacher, damn it. Uh, it seems like he said, Incredible Shrinking Woman was not a good experience. I'm going back to the well that made me a hit with Car Wash. We'll just make them cabbies. I, I do like that eclectic nature of the cast, but it's just that none of the material they're given is any good. It is a snapshot of 1982's stand-up comedy circuit. Clearly, Joel Schumacher just went to clubs and said, all right, I need to fill this cast out. <laughs> oh, what do you got? Who's that guy? Bill Maher? Yeah, well, who's that? Marshall Warfield? Yeah, I'm going to hire Bill Maher. I'm going to hire Paul Rodriguez. I'm going to hire Marshall Warfield. I'm going to hire Charlie Barnett. I was fascinated by this film for years because of Charlie Barnett. If you're not familiar with him, Charlie Barnett was a DC comic who then moved to New York. Uh, he was homeless. He lived on the street. He was a guy who made his reputation uh, playing the fountain in uh, Central Park, and he would pack that place, and he became a legend there. For a little while, Dave Chappelle was attached to make a biopic about Charlie Barnett. Barnett died of AIDS, and legendarily... He was seen by Lauren Michaels at an audition, and Lauren was like, that guy is a star. I He has to be on Saturday Night Live. They brought him back in for a second audition, and they asked him to read cue cards, and Barnett, who was illiterate, was too embarrassed to do it, and so he blew the audition off. Instead, they hired Eddie Murphy, and for years, Barnett resented him, and Barnett could not look at Eddie Murphy on TV or look at SNL. And then right around the time of DC Cab, he got work in this, and uh, he shows up in Fletch, Miami Vice, and he started to really get his career going. And I love that for a little while, Hollywood tried to figure out Charlie Barnett because Barnett was uncompromisingly himself. No, he definitely has a few moments uh, in the film of, of legitimate personality, uh, wit. It's a series a series of vignettes, and none of them are very interesting. Well, part of the problem is the movie hangs on Adam Baldwin, who he's coming off of my bodyguard. He's coming off of a couple of other things here. I don't think he's bad in this movie. I like the chemistry between him and Max Gale. I think he's fine, but he's not the character that you're interested in. All these movies that were using the Caddyshack model baked in the same problem, which was that Danny is not the most interesting character. So why are we watching him? And it's kind of Animal House as well. You know, this movie is infamous or famous for putting a certain gentleman and his visage into everything in the 1980s. While I certainly have no problem with Mr. T, he's not funny. He's not very he's not an interesting character in this movie. So the movie ultimately became an advertisement for Mr. T. In a weird way. Yeah. And I think it was because when they started making this movie, Rocky three hadn't come out yet. He wasn't the star of this film. He's the star of the advertising for the film. If you look at the poster for the film, famously, Mr. T is like the thing on the poster and is what they were selling it on because Rocky III had become a monster, giant, phenomenon success in the meantime. But the movie is pretty even-handed in terms of giving time to all of the, quote, wacky characters, including the Barbarian Brothers, uh, Peter and David Paul. Why is Bill Maher in this movie? Well, because Bill Maher was a stand-up comic at that point, and he is that mediocre white guy who, because he has his jacket sleeves rolled up and says everything with a question mark at the end, is supposed to be a stand-up comic. There's not a joke he does in this film. I, his material is startlingly unfunny throughout the entire movie. I am fascinated by people who show up in it like Bob Zamuda and Otis Day, who don't have a ton of film work. And Zamuda is, you know, famously um, Andy Kaufman's 
cohort and sidekick through a lot of his uh, mischief. Zamuda made very few film appearances just as a character showing up in a movie. So I find myself compelled to watch it, but I don't enjoy DC. I don't really think it's funny. I don't really think the cast gels. No, I, I didn't. I didn't think it was gonna, but I, I was kind of hoping that I would like. Maybe it's got a, a raucous energy like used cars, and I can give it a half a no. No, it's it is just very sketch driven and not. Funny. I will point out that the weird Irene Cara hit single that she performs in the film that we also hear on the soundtrack is written by Giorgio Moroder, and there is. No question in my mind that he just reused part of her vocal hook for The NeverEnding Story, which he also did the theme song for. I'd never heard it until this, but it's inescapable. It's worse than the Coco thing. I've been chasing dreams for so long Just one step behind And then they're gone Yes, you have to hurt before you grow, and everybody knows. As, as mediocre and as forgettable as DC Cab is, I swear to God, it is absolutely Animal House compared to our next movie. So far on 80s All Over, we've covered the Blake Edwards films, SOB and Victor Victoria, both of which we liked. Victor Victoria very much. Then we got to Trail of the Pink Panther. Then we got to Curse of the Pink Panther. After shitting on Peter Sellers' grave, not once, but twice, Blake Edwards and Burt Reynolds collaborate to create one of the most obnoxious movies I have ever seen. The Man Who Loved Women. This man is looking for many things in a relationship. He loves Louise's passion, but there's Svetlana's grace, Agnes's vulnerability. I better leave before one of us gets pregnant. And Mariana's insight. You're having an acute anxiety attack. But the more understanding they are, the more confused he gets. We don't do something different tonight. He's the man who loves women. Rated R starts Friday at a theater near you. Yeah. It's toxic. It's ugly. This is a remake. This is a remake of a Francois Truffaut film uh, from 77. And the Truffaut film is not one of my favorites of his movies. But it's a movie that is set in the late 70s and absolutely portrays that accurately. The problem is that this movie then wants to play Burt Reynolds, who by this point represents a certain kind of um, masculine American pop culture figure. First of all, it wants to put him in sweaters and put, make him more palatable and soften him in some way and then and then portray the inner life of that. Picture a guy who is a rancid asshole all the time, but then he has to go to court 
So he gets a nice sweater and a haircut and you see him on, on the stand trying to like be sensitive. You know, it's just creepy looking. What you're really getting here is you're getting a snapshot of a way of thinking. I was raised watching Blake Edwards films representing a certain kind of they were cultured and they were from Hollywood. And now that I look at them as an adult and I look at them as a 48 year old who has lived an entire life out here and seen the industry become something very different. If you want the snapshot of white privilege, Blake Edwards may be it. He also did have many progressive themes and ideas in his movies. He did. And I don't think Blake is a bad guy. I think Blake represents privilege, though, because Blake certainly makes movies from within a bubble. The world that he presents, the man who loved women, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself and your money and your problems. This is one of those movies where by the end of it, if you're not angry at this guy and his belly aching about his bullshit, you're not watching it. I hate the title. He doesn't love women at all. I am sure that from within Blake's bubble, Blake wrote a version of this thing where it excuses and explains why he is who he is. But no, he doesn't. There's no real excuse for explanation. He's just a dude who doesn't want to commit to anybody. I'm like, why is Dudley Moore not the star of this movie? I can't. It, this movie is so obsessed with this leading man's dick. All you need to know about it is this is a movie where his biggest problem is that Kim Basinger will not stop blowing him. They shot an all new ending after test screenings hated it. And then they hated the new ending more. So they went back to the first ending. That's what Blake Edwards does with money. <laughs> yeah. This is another one of those things where I don't get this and I don't really get it as an artist. And I'm not really sure I understand the impulse. I don't get writing this movie and then hiring Burt Reynolds and then casting both my daughter and my wife as people who are going to make out with Burt Reynolds in the movie. And Julie Andrews and, and Burt Reynolds have so little chemistry. It's like watching Judy Dench make out with a cactus. It's embarrassing. Scott, this is a movie where he is cured of his problems by seeing up her dress because of an earthquake. Yep. It's leering, to use my favorite adjective. It's tacky. I, I think that uh, Burt Reynolds has made a lot of bad films this decade. I think this might be the very worst. I think City Heat is more interesting than this movie. And it also has another tidbit that I dug up in that Dustin Hoffman was almost cast in this one, too, but he was a dick. I'm pretty sure Dustin Hoffman was almost cast in 96% of what we will be discussing for the rest of this podcast. Let's move on from a wholly terrible film to a forgotten but pretty decent war movie called Uncommon Valor. They planned for it. They trained for it. Now, 6,000 miles from home, behind enemy lines, seven men go for it. They had one way out, one chance to get their buddies who were left behind. Seven men with one thing in common. Uncommon Valor. Be there. Rated R opens Friday, December 16th at a theater near you. Check newspaper for local listing. Here we are as as the 80s are kind of getting underway and starting to build up some steam. And we're starting to really deal with Vietnam a little bit more. And the way we're dealing with Vietnam for the most part at this point is in low budget action films. Kind of makes sense because the mainstream's flirted with it a little bit. But it's such a giant topic that I think the mainstream's still afraid of it. On one hand, you could say Uncommon Valor is a very standard piece of escapism. But 
even though it is kind of a simple action movie, it is still dealing with the issue of P- Vietnam POWs. And it does so, I think, respectfully and enter- in an entertaining way. I think it's, this is a decent war programmer. Like, I mean, it feels very Walter Hilly. It's from Ted Kocheff, who just came off First Blood. Clearly, they knew he was good at action. This is a guy whose career would be hurt by Burt Reynolds as well, coming soon. I still like this movie. It reminds me a bit of Southern Comfort. Fred Ward, Patrick Swayze, Randall Tex Cobb, Robert Stack, Tim Thomerson. Your is in this movie. I like Man on the Mission movies. I like movies where you put a group of guys together and then you train them. And so you see how things are supposed to go down and then they get over there. And of course, everything goes to shit. Hopefully you like those guys and you just want to watch them kick ass and figure things out. And that's what this movie does pretty well. And they benefit enormously from that casting. All these guys are character actors who work a lot, but they don't always get this kind of role. How often does Randall Tex Cobb get real dialogue for a big chunk of a movie? I like the fact that they let him have some character here and they let him play some stuff and he really responds. I like him so much in this. Did you notice that one really weird producer credit? No. Wings Hauser was a co-producer on this movie. He developed the script with someone else and... uh, When the screenplay was purchased, he got to stay on as a producer. I assume maybe he thought he'd be cast in one of the roles, but due to the fact that he is not a very good actor, probably didn't get one. I was always fascinated with this because of the John Milius connection. And because of Conan the Barbarian, by this point, I was a little bit Milius crazy. And anytime his name showed up on something, I was immediately interested in it. I started to notice, and this was certainly one of the films that helped clarify, I think John Milius has a thing for guns and war. It's not interested in debating the morality or relitigating why we should or shouldn't have been in Vietnam. But the one thing it does do about Vietnam that I think is accurate and emotional and interesting is it acknowledges that America wasn't finished with it, that there was a, an itch that they weren't scratching yet. And Rambo first blood part two, we'll get into this. Uh, This movie certainly deals with this, but POWs was the easy way of putting into words the overall feeling that we hadn't really dealt with Vietnam yet. You know what else, Drew, I think is pretty damn good. And I've discovered over the last few weeks that it really tears horror fans one way or the other. I think we're both big fans of John Carpenter's. She lives. What do you mean came back? She loves. I'm sorry, Arnie, I can't. She's a beauty. I know you're jealous. She's a beast. The kid was cut in half, Arnie. She's a killer. The riot is over. She's a 58 Fury. She's Christine. You ain't mad, are you? Christine. She's hell on wheels. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. It's funny because I picked the boys up yesterday and I was driving them over here and they said, what are we watching tonight? And I said, well, we're going to watch Christine. And Alan said, well, what's Christine? I said, it's a Stephen King. And he goes, okay, all right, I'm good, okay. And I said, it's directed by John Carpenter. And he goes, well, if it's John Carpenter doing Stephen King, Dad, it's going to be good. Oh, my God, dude. (laughs) I am so so proud. And you look down at your, your mirror image and you're like, yeah, I did a good job. I think that a lot of people who deride the film or don't love it think of it mainly as a killer car movie, which, of course, in every capacity is a silly concept. Fine. But what works so well in this screenplay is how he captures what it feels like for Arnie to be a loser and then for a little while not feel like a loser and how addicting that can be. I think Arnie Cunningham is a tragic character. I feel for him so much. I'm a big Keith Gordon fan. Even if this movie, even if everything else about this movie was not good, his performance is 
powerful. I love him as a director. I love him as a filmmaker. And I love that he started his career wanting to do both things. So in home movies, you get the sense that he's playing with De Palma. And De Palma loves this bright little kid who clearly kind of is already thinking about what kind of stories he's going to tell and how he's going to tell them. And and Gordon didn't act for a long time. There wasn't It wasn't like his career was 25 years and then he became a filmmaker. He mainly was a young actor. And so there's not a ton of his oh, work. I love so many of his uh, Chocolate War. It's a great film that he directed. And what uh, Midnight Clear, phenomenal film. He's a great director. Uh, uh, John Stockwell. Yeah, really good, solid, good performance. I think Alexandra Paul is lovely. I don't think she's great in the movie. I love the character actors in this movie. Robert's Blossom as the creepy old man who sells him the car. And Robert Prosky, maybe we made a little fun of Robert Prosky this month for uh, him playing a, uh, a Romanian in the keep. But, oh boy, is he amazing in this movie. You will never see a more hateful, slovenly, you'd never want to. It's borderline cartoon in some ways, and Carpenter certainly skirts that edge in this movie. And then the boys last night were cracking up during the scene where Buddy and the last other guy who's alive are being chased by Christina and they're in the car. I love that whole sequence. I love that whole part of the movie where those guys have fucked Christine up and she's going after them one by one. I think some of the most haunting images in the film come from those sequences. Moochie's death is so personal. And to have the car have the personality it does, it's a real testament to what John does in the film. Oh, man. If you just want to look at it as a pure horror movie, there are some absolutely beautiful shots. Carpenter knows full well that the idea of a killer car is 90% silly, and I have to make it cool and badass for it to not be laughable. And there's shots of Christine going down the highway on fire, and when she plows through the gas station with, with Carpenter's score, I was like, you you did it. This is an actual holy shit moment. What do you think the biggest moment of the movie was for the boys? Well, it has to be when Christine rebuilds herself. The moment where they both jumped off the couch was when they're setting the plan up in the garage at the end. And Christine suddenly lurches to life and you realize she's been in the garage the whole time. They lost their minds. And the idea that John managed to get a jump scare and a misdirect with a car, with an actual car. Maybe the hardest thing in the world to sneak up on you with, to me, is really masterful. And it's amazing because this was a movie that he kind of half-heartedly made. He had to do something after the thing that was considered commercially safe. He didn't really like the book, but took the job because, all right, it makes sense. It makes sense. This is what I should be making. Considering that that's how he approached it, I think it's really lean and mean and stripped down, and it is the essence of that book done perfectly on film. My last note on it would just be that, like with American Werewolf of London, where they did such a good job of building a soundtrack of existing songs that use the word moon or played off of moon, this has a very funny, very witty soundtrack. And it was before Bad to the Bone had been destroyed by overuse in movies, where every song feels like there is a very wry sense of humor applied to picking it and applying it in that particular place and time. Oh, yeah. It clearly is a way to give Christine a voice. Pay close attention to the song that's playing in the drive-in when his girlfriend starts choking. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I, I guess I can see why people think it's a you know lesser carpenter. I don't. I think it's fantastic. 
switching gears completely, another fantastic film that has nothing to do with killer cars at all, except maybe at the end. On November 13th, 1974, Karen Silkwood, an employee at an Oklahoma nuclear facility, was on her way to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She never got there. Name? Karen Silkwood. Drew Stevens. Dolly Pelliker. Sweethearts like your two people. I'm in love with one of them. So good. Rated R. Now playing at a selected theater near you. I'm a big Mike Nichols fan. This has always felt to me like like sort of lesser nickels or it, I always put it on a lesser shelf. Like, I, okay, I get it. There's the main Mike Nichols films I'm obsessed with. And there's those movies. Yeah. Watching it again. I think I've been unfair to it over the years. It's a really well-made, well-observed movie in the hands of a different director. This would just be a movie about the corporate malfeasance. Then the film would basically be a, a gavel banging courtroom drama about right and wrong. And this is actually about the day-to-day process that led to this infamous true story about Karen Silkwood, who was killed in the 70s, almost certain that it was done by uh, somebody affiliated with this energy company that she worked for. He spends half the movie in this dingy house where Meryl Streep and her boyfriend, Kurt Russell, and her lesbian friend, Cher, all just commiserate about the day at work and relationships and girlfriends and boyfriends. That's not what I expected. And that's what Mike Nick brings to something like this it is the real humanity i think there's something to that nor efren uh, co-wrote the script with uh, alice arlins and i think what is interesting about the way the film is structured and the way we observe karen's life and the life of the small town and the life of the people that work there is karen is clearly not a superhero karen's a disaster in a lot of ways and certainly a person who doesn't have a real strong sense of where she's going in life or why she's doing anything she's doing for her to become a whistleblower. There's a couple of things that make that interesting and heroic. First, it's the idea that she's not a hero type, that she's just a person who, because she observes this, this thing eventually has to speak up. What is at stake are these lives, these normal lives that we're observing. And and the irony is that her coworkers now resent her because she's slowing down the process and is seen as like a spy of, of some sort. But the irony is she's only doing this to protect them. She's not doing it for a third party. She's, she's doing it to protect their health. There's a contempt for a lot of the people that would be working in a plant like this. There is a, a societal feeling like, well, it's okay because it's them. One of the things the movie does so well is it makes a really strong case for these people. And I get what you're saying. The movie makes them seem very small, not inconsequential, but very small in comparison to this new industry, this new juggernaut, this company that an authentically blue collar, not romanticized blue collar. The danger is these are the salt of the earth, the very best people. And you're ruining the very best people. Well, this movie is brave enough to say, No, they're just normal people, and sometimes they're shitty, and sometimes their lives aren't great, and sometimes they're confused, and sometimes they're just messes, but they're still people, and they absolutely deserve your protection. That, to me, is the braver version, and that is what I think Nichols did. Oh, 
Look, there's Craig T. Nelson. There's Fred Ward. There's Diana Scarwood, Ron Silver, M. Emmett Walsh, Bruce McGill, David Strathairn, Will Patton, Charles Hallahan. This movie has like Joseph Summer. It has so many good names in it. Tess Harper has, I think, one scene. <laughs> There's even characters in this who you don't know their name, but you've seen them in 44,000 movies. The little lady who gets cancer first. She is somebody who we've seen in a million things. Yeah, it's it's beautifully directed by Mike Nichols. Um, and one of the reasons I've always dismissed it is because uh, I love sort of the widescreen, uh, beautifully composed, careful cinematography of early Mike Nichols, like The Graduate and uh, Virginia Woolf and those movies. This is much more observed and sort of captured and meant to be real life. And it took me a while to, to adjust to that. But I think he does a terrific job here. I think that Cher is unexpectedly good. I get why this transformed her career, but it also made her harder to cast because suddenly you had no idea who she was. This is not at all the share that had been sold for years and years on the variety show. And there's a prickly difficult side to her that is wonderful in this film. And immediately you don't know exactly where to cast her anymore. I think Mike Nichols was, he put together a really cool cast around Meryl Streep because you know, Street by that point was considered the sort of like the very best actor working. And there was already a sense that anybody you threw at her needed to be top notch. So Mike Nichols puts together a cast here, including Kurt Russell and Cher in lead roles. And remember, we're not even 10 years out from the computer who wore tennis shoes and the strongest man in the world. Kurt Russell is still shaking off that that Disney kid thing. He often gets to do drama in like, rah-rah kind of way, like a sports movie kind of way. Here he's playing very quiet, very introverted. He has a moment uh, towards the end where he's just kind of walking through the house they used to share. And I'm thinking, this sequence for another director, you could just lose all this. But he's so great in this moment. He just has a real sadness and acceptance in his eyes. Uh, the movie belongs to Meryl Streep, but Russell and Cher are both fantastic. We are now going to move on to an, an interesting aberration for the great Mel Brooks. He decided for this film that he wasn't going to do his ultra-broad genre satire. He was instead going to remake a 1942 Ernst Lubitsch comedy called To Be or Not To Be. It took five people to stop the Nazi invasion of Poland. I hear the handsome young prince coming. Mel Brooks. To be... Mel Brooks. Oh, I'm sure. Mel Brooks. Yeah. Mel Brooks. Yeah. And Anne Bancroft in To Be or Not To Be. That is this England? Is the movie. Rated PG. Now playing at a selected theater near you. I did not like this when I saw it as a kid. I was bored stiff. None of it made me laugh. I was angry because it wasn't silly like Young Frankenstein. And I was stupid. It's a good movie. It's weird because it's the Lubitsch film pretty much exactly. It's yeah. uh, almost every joke is the same. Almost every. Uh, he eliminates a few characters, but yeah, uh, plot wise, it's almost identical. Yeah. And a lot of the big laughs are the same. Like, you know, a lot of the set pieces are hinged on the same comic premise. And like, he certainly milks things in a few different ways. But it looks like it looks like Fox just said to Mel Brooks. All right, look, we know you love the Lubitsch film. That's what you got to do for a few months. Go do it. And he just took some friends and did the Lubitsch film. You know, like I'm delighted that Charles Durning got a chance to do some of this stuff. Christopher Lloyd has a, a few weird moments. And and I do think Brooks is 
solid in the film. I would still recommend that people watch the original where it's Jack Benny and Carol Lombard. And I think it's maybe Jack Benny's greatest moment on film because it's the perfect use of that personality of his. I think he's terrific in the original and Lombard is over the moon. Great. I love Carol Lombard. And this is one of her performances where she's a little bit older and she loves the flattery of, of a younger man who's interested in her. And she's a little bit of a man eater and God, she's terrific in it. Bancroft certainly attacks it. She like tears into this role. Yeah, uh, and I think that part of the reason that uh, I, as a kid was disappointed in this and didn't dig deep enough. I saw Mel Brooks, I think spoof, uh, but this was directed and written by several of his longtime cohorts, uh, Alan Johnson, and Ronnie Graham and Thomas Meehan. Uh, Charles Durning is great. Uh, Christopher Lloyd. Tim Madison uh, has a somewhat meaty role in this. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I, I've always liked Tim Madison. Jose Farrar, great. Uh, George Gaines, George Weiner, a lot, Earl Bowen, a lot of the Mel Brooks staples. It, it feels like a Mel Brooks movie that was like, if, if his spoofs were made for people 30 and younger, To Be or Not To Be feels like it was made for those people's parents. And it's an amiable, likable movie. It is about a married couple who are legendary performers in Poland uh, as World War II is kind of underway and getting started. And the Nazis have already started annexing Europe as the film begins. These two are still trying to keep the lights on at their theater. There's a lot of uh, mistaken identities and people playing other people and fake beards and uh, fake Nazis. And it's farce mechanics, but dealing with a very real moment in history. And I think this version leans a little bit more heavily on hindsight. And that's because, and this is what is so ferociously interesting about the original one. The original was made before we even entered World War II. The idea that Ernst Lubitsch was making comedies where Adolf Hitler was being as viciously lampooned as he is in this film, while Hitler was still occupying Europe, is a little mind-boggling to me. When you see the original in the prism of when it was made, it's crazy brave. This is an interesting exercise by people looking back at that moment, and it tips a little bit more into, as Act 3 unfolds, uh, a little bit more wish fulfillment. All right. Well, speaking of wish fulfillment, let's move on to something for the Christmas season. This was a short that was attached to a re-release of Disney's The Rescuers. And it is called, simply enough, Mickey's Christmas Carol. A Dickens classic gets a Disney twist. Wow. It's Mickey, Donald, the whole Disney gang. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. Together again in a brand new featurette. I thought you'd be tall. Mickey's Christmas Carol. Plus, where is she? The Rescuers. It's full-length Disney animation at its finest and funniest. Bail out. Bail out. Rated G. There was a lot of noise made when this thing came out about how this was a return to the original classic animation. It was the first time Mickey had been on the screen in a while. The first time a lot of these characters have been on screen in a while. And I would argue that one of the reasons our generation had no problem with Roger Rabbit and accepting the premise of it was because Disney and Warner Brothers had already steered into the idea that these characters were actors who would just show up in different roles and things and not characters. You know, Mickey Mouse was a guy that you cast in different movies. Donald Duck was a character you cast in different movies. And this was a great example of everybody came back and got a role. There's weasels in this thing and there's fair and there's characters from uh, wind in the willows. And there's all sorts of actors who show up. 
Uh, yeah, I don't have much to say about Ms. Mickey's Christmas Carol. I think it's a, a charming adaptation. I like the rescuers, and uh, I remember liking this. Uh, that's about it. It's a short. Yeah. So let's move on yeah. to our final film of the month. This, I believe, is going to be a fairly controversial discussion because I know that some people feel very, very passionately about Brian De Palma's remake of... Scarface is exhilarating for its vigor and craftsmanship. Al Pacino creates his freshest character in years, says Richard Corliss, Time Magazine. Roger Ebert, Chicago Sun-Times, gives Scarface four stars, highest rating. And Vincent Canby, New York Times, says Scarface is stylish and provocative. The most serious film about the American underworld since The Godfather. Al Pacino is Scarface. Rated R. Okay, so let me ask you, when did you see it? I saw this as a horror loving freak at probably 16 or 17. I, I don't think I saw it in 83. I probably saw it 86, 87. I did not see it in theaters because um, my parents went and saw it. They came home and lost their minds. It almost seems like De Palma saw some recent horror films and said, hey, if horror films can do that, I can do that in action films too. Well, you got to remember, Brian De Palma was determined to get the studios to let him make X-rated films. That's what he wanted more than anything. And I think he really believed that the X needed to be opened up to filmmakers for use in telling certain kinds of stories. And so he would push to see how far he could make that rating work before the studio would just have to give in and go, all right, I guess we're releasing an X-rated movie. Do you remember the, the record that this film held for a long time? Can't you stop saying fuck all the time? Uh, the most uses of the F word. Fuck, fuck, fuck you, fuck you. Fuck you, man! Fuck you, man. Fucking, fuck you, the fuck, fuck you. Fuck you, fucking, fucking, fucking shit, fucking, fucking, fuck, man. Fucking, fucking, lesbian. Fucking, okay, fuck you, how's that? Fuck you. Fuck you. So I didn't see it in theaters, but I did see it the day it came out on home video because I had a friend whose dad brought it home and we watched it twice. What was unique about that VHS? Two tapes. Yes, two tapes. Exactly. I had been told you can never see Scarface. And the day it came out on video, we watched it twice because I was determined to figure this movie out. Here's a, here's a hint. Parents, take this from me and Drew. Never tell your children they can't watch a movie if you mean it. <laughs> because my father told me the same thing about Alien and The Thing. My take on Scarface, because I just watched it again this weekend, and I've seen it many times over the years, I am fascinated by how much I hate and love what I'm looking at. It is absolutely aware of how leeringly trashy it is. It is a movie that is unapologetically graphic. It is meant to incite and provoke. It was... And upping the game from earlier gangster pictures. It's a reaction to what Hollywood had always done in romanticizing gangsters. And I think De Palma, knowing that there was a tendency to romanticize the worst behavior and the excess of it, decided to see how far he could push that to see if the audience would follow. And much like Thomas Harris, who unconsciously created one of the most charming monsters of all time in Hannibal Lecter, Brian De Palma's efforts backfired on him because in making Tony Montana the charismatic monster that he was trying to make, he did it too well. And he created a generation of people who didn't understand that we aren't supposed to emulate what we're watching in this film. This is unbelievably racist propaganda of the highest order. And for a major studio to release a movie in which you have no Hispanic people playing all Cubans 
and every Cuban in the movie is ultimately portrayed as a piece of violent garbage determined to undermine the very fabric of America, what you have done is created a clarion call that says all of your worst instincts are true, and here's the evidence. This is something that at 20 I would have called a guilty pleasure. Totally free of morality. It is literally just like a cartoon of violence, and it is he is a dirty sleazebag, and he's going to get his, and we're just going to sit and watch all his crazy shenanigans until he finally gets his. And it's fun to watch that descent. It is, but it's also excessively ugly, and I think shock value works better in short doses. And by the time this movie gets to the ending, you're just beaten into submission, and you're like, I'm not shocked anymore. It's it's kind of become self parody. In Reagan's 80s, the only self-parody that punched through how insane things actually were was self-parody taken to this extreme. What Brian De Palma was reacting to was already at a level of self-parody that was almost unimaginable. I grew up in Florida, so I had a lot of time in Florida in the early and the mid-80s um, reading headlines, being aware of sort of what was being sold to us as what was happening in Florida you made the point that the film touches on immigration. Who is uh, ultimately the villain in this movie? Is it the war on drugs or is it this particular man or is it Cuba in general? Like, who is indicted here? See, I don't think Oliver Stone works like that. Oliver Stone is about burning the whole fucking thing down. And as much as this is a Brian De Palma film, this is an Oliver Stone film. Oliver Stone as a writer has an undeniable footprint on the movies that were made from his screenplays, whether it's Midnight Express or this one, before he started really directing his own material. It's Oliver Stone who is a reactionary. I don't know that Oliver Stone has an answer that he's trying to present. I think Oliver Stone is taking everything that was happening and turns it up as loud as it goes and throws it back at you. Watching De Palma direct the super slick surface of this with the weird scabrous anger of an Oliver Stone screenplay, you get this film that has no fucking idea what it's trying to tell you. All it knows is it's trying to tell you very loudly. I think if cocaine could be turned into a movie, it's this movie. This is the cokiest coke film of all time. How about just on a technical sense? Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Um, John Alonzo's photography in this is fluid and gorgeous and epic. And I'm not a huge synth score fan always. But I think what Giorgio Moroder does here has this weird, haunted, carnival, disco quality. Like, it's a disco in hell. Like, it really works for this movie and this world. Every individual sequence of action, that hotel room sequence where they torture him and they chainsaw the other guy and then Stephen Bauer comes in, beat for beat, shot for shot, oh my God, that is one of the most unreal moments of tension and fear and horror. And when the guy who has the chainsaw goes out the window and the stuntman falls straight down into the stairwell, I don't know how he's not dead. It's crazy looking. Um and the film's filled with that. It's filled with bravura moments that are just breathtaking on a filmmaking level. And I, yeah, but you can't help but wish that it had been in service of th something with a little bit more of a brain, a little bit more of a moral compass. Not that I want to be lectured by Oliver Stone, but I mean, it just feels like after a while, it's just like, how nihilistic can it get? All right. You're, you've come with us this far. Let's go farther. M most of what's good about this film is in the first half. I, again, there's something that's 
fitting in the subject matter about overstaying your welcome and getting to the point where it's just that horrible jaw grind of a kokai when you're on the far end of it and everything's awful now and you just want to go to sleep but you can't and the movie captures the feeling of that in a way that I think is somewhat fitting Al Pacino's performance in this movie is swing for the fences crazy is it a brilliant performance or is it a ridiculous performance? It's both. I don't and I think, know. And it, that's one of the things that in, in the history of film, when we look back at how, how we've treated racial casting and how we've treated the telling of certain stories and how we've treated the, the portrayal of people, there's a lot that we're going to have to answer for. And you're going to have to shake it off as that was film figuring its way out. And film is still young. It's 100 years old as an art form, guys. It's still a child. Right. But, you know, having said all that, I, I just can't believe that they're shooting in Miami in 1982. And like one PA says to the other, what, they couldn't find three Cuban actors? I mean. And this is that horrible argument that has kept our industry making these mistakes for so long. Well, you have to be bankable in order to make a movie, but you're not bankable because there's no bankable Latino stars. But unless we give somebody a chance, then they'll never be bankable. So it's. It's a self-fulfilling cycle. It is. And this movie, this movie could have been a moment obviously could have been a moment where they broke that cycle. I've enjoyed this Scarface discussion. I, I I was prepared to say I truly just don't like the movie, but, you know, I do in some regards like it, and in other ways, I just wanted to shut the fuck up. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, say hello to my little friend. Uh, we are done with December of 1983. Our next episode, of course, will be our uh, year-end recap, which will include the Oscar winners, uh, the box office winners, and our both of our top tens, and of course, another special little homage to the 3D of 1983. Drew, I had a great time covering this year with you, and I cannot wait for 1983 to be finally over and we can move on to much better years. I still do not love 1983. Thank you to all our listeners. Thank you to our patrons. Drew, I can't believe that we survived it. I can't believe that it was as surprising as it was on many fronts. And I'm I'm glad that we did this. It makes me excited about what's ahead because if this is the worst year that we're going to deal with, that's not bad. Uh, as always, please share the show with people. Play it for new people every time you do. And we hear back from somebody who's just discovered it. It is a delight. And you guys are the reason it happens. Thanks so much. <laughs>